Well, if you have a Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. This, this morning, we're going to be in Hebrews 10 verse 23. Just one verse this morning. Right? That's, that's, that's even slower than normal for us. And it gives us a really great opportunity to go deep and to see what, how even just one verse packs a punch that has been prepared for throughout the entire letter. If you, if you weren't here last week, then here's the analogy we used to help understand how where we are now relates to where we've been for the last few months. It's like the difference between training camp, football training camp, which is going on right now, and and playing the actual games, which will start happening next month. In training camp, you're getting all the details in place. You're laying a foundation. You're you're getting yourself sharp and ready. And then the party starts when the games hit, right? Then you get to actually start to put into practice the things that you've been developing through your, your training camp, right? Well, it's really, this letter similarly works where the past four or five chapters have been about teaching truth about Jesus so that once you get a handle on it, once you really grabbed it and have internalized it, then you can start using it. So chapter 10 Verse 19 is where, we, is where we've turned once and for all through the rest of the letter into putting into use the things that he's been telling us about Jesus. Last week, we, we saw the first of three different commands that he starts this section with. He says, therefore, because all these things are true about Jesus, then here's some things you're going to do. You're going to start by first drawing near to God. That was last week. If you weren't here with us, you should be able to find the audio from that online. What will be today is the second command, verse 23 Not just draw near to God, but hold fast to the confession of hope because God who promised is faithful. And then next week, the third command, let's encourage each other as we see the day drawing near. Those are the three commands. We're going to camp over number two today. The command to hold fast to the confession of hope without wavering. I think this command was necessary because the author's friends, just like us, struggle with doubt. What else would threaten your hold on your confession of hope but doubt, if you really think about it? A confession of hope is just a shorthand way of talking about everything that Christianity teaches. The truth about Jesus, that he is the one sent by God to deal with our sin once and for all, and that through him we can be free, that through Jesus death has been conquered once and for all. That's the confession of hope. That's what we live for, right? And he's telling them, hold on to that. Why would he tell them, hold on to that, unless they were at risk of letting go? I think he told them to hold on because they were doubting. They were struggling to believe that this thing they confessed would actually hold true. Remember that this section comes on the heels of a long section where he's telling them things about Jesus. Now he's telling them how to use those things. And now he's telling them to hold fast to their confession. So here's what I think he's getting at. There's something about what he's already said about Jesus that gives you a resource when you're struggling to hold on to him. Something about what he's already said gives you the resources you need to hold fast when you struggle with doubt. So what we want to do today is pretty simple. We want to dig into this verse, but even more, pull from the things around this verse that this verse is applying and try to understand how what he's told us already can help us when we struggle with doubt. I think the best way to come at it is to, is to take what I'm calling two very big level generic forms of doubt and to see how this gospel truth drives into each of those forms. 
doubts, I'm calling doubts of the mind, which is kind of what we usually think about when we think about doubt. Doubt about maybe philosophical or the existence of God or the truth of the Bible, things like that. Doubts of the mind. There's resources here that help us fight those kinds of doubts. And then what, what I'm calling doubts of the soul, which are not so much your thinking, is God really exist? Does God really exist? Can he really be trusted? But in your life, confronted with suffering or sorrow or uncertainty, when you waver, when you give in to fear and anxiety, you're expressing another kind of doubt. Doubt that God really is who he claims to be. Doubt that he will be there for you. Doubt that the confession can hold you when your circumstances shift. So we're gonna, what we're going to do today is try to drive the truth of Hebrews home to those who struggle with doubts of the mind or with doubts of the soul. You guys with me still? That's where we're headed. If you found this passage, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read. This is the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Hebrews 10.23 and all of its context helps us to hold fast against doubts of the mind. Now, if you're a doubter, if you're someone who's prone to wondering if it's all true, then verses like this one, where we're told to, to hold fast without wavering, or verses like one we looked at last week that said, when you come near to God, draw near with a full assurance of faith. Verses like those can be terrifying. Because what you can see, looking at those, ver- at those verses, is in dramatic contrast to what you see in yourself. So you ask questions like, what if I'm not even sure that God exists? How can I draw near to him? How can I hold fast to him without wavering if, if I'm not even sure how I can know if what Christians claim is true? These are the kinds of doubts that I've struggled with off and on for more than 10 years. And, and if you're stuck there right now, let me encourage you. Here's where I want to start. I want to start by encouraging you that there is victory to be had over these things. I know a lot of times when you're in the middle of it, it seems like there's no way out of it. It seems like that is where you're going to be stuck for life. And let me tell you that that is not true. There is victory to be had. On the other hand, I think regular struggle with doubt is part of living in a world where we're waiting on Jesus to come back and deliver on everything he's promised to do. So I try to affirm and claim my doubts when I have them as a way of hungering after heaven, as a way of of longing for a day when I won't even need faith anymore because I'll see with my own eyes everything that's been promised to me. What we need is resources in the meantime, right? We wait on that time when we, don't have any, when we won't even need faith because we'll see him as he is and we'll become like him, but that time is not here yet and we still struggle. And I've just promised you that there's victory to be had, so what you're probably looking for is some, something to grab onto. What you need are some, some resources to help you hold fast in the middle of your doubt, if that's where you are. And I think this verse and its context helps us. What I want to do is give you three pieces of advice based on this verse and the things around it that it's applying. Three pieces of advice to help you hold fast against doubts of the mind. Here's number one. Actually, before I give you number one, let me say another qualifying statement here. What I'm not going to do this morning is what's usually called apologetics, which is where you take a, a, like a common controversial part of Christianity and you try to defend it. Things like the existence of God or you know, 
the creation of the world or something like that. Uh, I believe firmly that those that apologetics, that kind of defense of the faith, is useful, and I would love to to help you on that front if you need it. But it's usually most useful on a case by case basis. See, I don't know where all of you are. I don't really know which doubts each of you have. So it would be hard to do that effectively in, in a sermon. So what I'm going to ask you to do is if, if you've got one particular issue that you're stuck on, come and talk to me after. We'll have coffee this week if you want, and we'll talk it out. Uh, I won't be able to give you full answers, I'm sure, because I, chances are I may have struggled with the same thing. But I, I, I have read a lot of stuff on that front, and I'd love to put something in your hands that might help you. All right? There's my caveat. What I want to do now is just give you some more spiritually oriented resources for fighting doubt. Because doubts of the mind are not just locked up in your mind. They are rooted in your heart. So here's, here's piece of advice number one. Check your heart. Check your heart. Last week we noted this. In the command to draw near, the first thing that was to be true of people who come to God is that they were supposed to have a true heart. And what we said about that is that those who have a true heart are those who actually want to draw near to God and to be changed by him. That a lot of times, underneath the surface, we don't really want to be changed by him. We would rather have the sin that, that gives us pleasure, even if the pleasure doesn't last, than we would actually see God and know him as he is and be changed by him. So if you're struggling to connect with God, we said, part of the reason may be that you really don't want to. I think the same thing can hold true with doubt. You may not want to believe in him. If we've learned anything from the philosophy of the last 30 years, it's that we don't come to issues of truth, to true and false, right and wrong, as blank slates, waiting for experiments that we run to just fill up that blank slate with this predetermined set of information. That's not how we come to issues like this. We come as biased people who have wants, deep wants, and that colors what seems plausible to us. The mind and what seems reasonable to the mind is deeply affected by what we want, by the whole person. And what this means is that if you're struggling with doubt about God, that part of the reason may be that underneath you don't want to believe in him. Because let's be honest, the God that's described for us in the Bible is not a God that's easy to believe in. He's a God that demands everything for us. If he is who the Bible says that he is, if he's the one who created us, who gives us every breath that we take in, if he's the one who is sovereign over everything that he's made, then to believe in that God to really believe in him is at the same time to give yourself to him. It's one of those beliefs that to believe in it absolutely and inevitably implies you're going to act in a certain way. It's the same thing that holds true when, let's say, you're in, a, you're in an office building and, and you hear a fire alarm go off. A lot of times you're just going to assume it's a drill. But if you see that fire, if you see the fire... You're, that, the belief that that fire is there and it's present to your eyes is the kind of belief that is going to lead you to act inevitably. You're going to leave, right? The same thing. If God is who he claims to be, then you're going to submit to him. Repentance comes with that belief automatically because nobody in their right mind would think that God really does exist and he really does care about sin and he really is sovereign over everything and I won't even get another breath apart from him and then say, I'm just going to stick it to him and not do what he tells me to, Right? If you, if you do not do what he tells you to, it shows you really don't believe he is who he claims to be. So check your heart. Because what we want to believe 
colors what seems reasonable to us. That's point number one. Here's a piece of advice number two. Pray through your doubts. Pray through your doubts. Remember the command that comes just before this one. This command is to hold fast your confession of hope. Just before this one was a command to draw near to God, to claim this great high priest that's ours over the house of God, to claim the resources that are ours because of him, to to claim the fact that he's praying for us, that he's actually helping us before the Father, taking these weak and sometimes uh, incoherent prayers that we offer and cleaning them up and giving them clarity and presenting them to God as a perfect offering. Now, if, if that is true, if our high priest is who this letter has said that he is, then holding fast is going to mean using the resources that he's promised us. That means using him as our high priest and bringing what we're struggling with to him, trusting that as our high priest, he experienced everything that we did. And he became like us and lived a life here on earth so that he would know what it's like to be us, so that he could pray for us better. So he knows something about what it is to doubt, even mysteriously, God himself in Jesus. Think of the night of of his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane and the prayers that he offered. It's not exactly the same sort of doubt that we experience, but there was something in that experience that lets him know what you're going through, and he will pray for you. Now, here's where I want to get personal and and confess that a mistake that I have made on this count that I don't want you to make. One, I think when I first started struggling with doubt back in college, one of my natural reactions, I don't know if I ever justified this to myself, but one of the things that I, I did was just stop praying and reading the Bible because what's the point of communicating with a God you're not sure is there? Surely I'm not the only one in here who has, who has experienced that. If you can't know that he's even there to hear your prayers, what's the point of praying? So what I think implicitly what I was thinking was, I've got to get certain that God's there before I can justify coming to him, spending the time that's necessary to to have a relationship with him. What I was looking for was a kind of mathematical certainty that he's there, apart from which I couldn't get to know him at all. But that kind of certainty is just not possible with God. And the reason it's not possible with God is that God is a person, and you don't get that kind of certainty in any relationship that you have with another person. It just doesn't exist. Mathematical certainty is not something that ever exists in a relationship between two people. Richard Baxter was an old Puritan pastor several hundred years ago, dealt with a lot of people in his church who were just covered up with doubt. They just couldn't be sure where they stood with God or what God, how God felt about them or even if he existed. And one of his analogies that I love is this. He says, no wife or child is certain, I think in the mathematical sense, that the husband or father will not murder them. Right? And yet they may live comfortably and not fear it. Let me tweak the example a little bit. I've, done, I've used this one before. I'm not mathematically certain that my wife is not a Russian spy embedded in my life to give information back to the Kremlin, right? I don't know that for certain. I can't prove it. But I'd be foolish to live like she might be a spy, right? I don't need mathematical certainty here to enjoy her because what I have in my relationship with her is a relational certainty. 
I've known her since she was a child. I have watched her develop and grow as a person. We have shared life together. And through that, I've come to know her character in a way that is certain to me. I don't need mathematical certainty in order to live like she is who she claims to be. Now, I know that God is a little bit different on this front because we don't actually see him with our own eyes, and that makes faith necessary in a way that it probably isn't in a human relationship. But it's not completely different because what we have here is a relationship that's put before us. And what we're called to is to get to know him and to come to see his character as he proves himself to us throughout the course of our lives. Now imagine, if you wait on him to prove himself to you with some sort of mathematical certainty, before you will come to him and actually try to get to know him, then you are cutting the legs out from under yourself at the very beginning. You are fixing the game with rules that mean you're not going to get anywhere. It would be like trying to say, I am not going to get to know you until I get to know you. What this means is that we can't afford to wait for certainty before we engage in a relationship with God. To bring this back around to Hebrews, remember, again, the context of this command. It comes right after a command to draw near to him, to get to know him, to bring your your struggles to him and trust that he will hear you and be there for you. It comes on the heels of a whole section of the book that has explained to us that the whole purpose for God coming to earth is, And Jesus was to get to know us, to make it possible for us to have a relationship with him. So now that we have this high priest who invites us to come to him, one of the ways we fight doubt, even when we're not sure he exists, is to pray through those doubts and to ask that he, as our great high priest, would minister to us and give us the kind of relational certainty and confidence with him that we need to flourish. Claim what Jesus holds out to you and pray even when you're not sure. That's that's piece of advice number two. Here's number three. Hold on. Just hold on. I think the essence of the command we're given in verse 23 is just that. The command is to hold fast to him, to this confession that Jesus is who our text claims that he is. I love the image here. He is not establishing for us a kind of certainty that we've got to reach before we can claim this confession. All he's saying is that you should hold on to it. I think what he's calling for is a kind of patience through the doubt. What I know from experience, and I'm guessing what many of you do as well, is that when when you're in it, in the darkness of doubt, one of the things that you tell yourself is that it's never going to be different from this, that I'm going to be stuck here forever. I can't imagine believing the way I used to believe. I think what this command encourages us to do when we're in the middle of that and we can't imagine not struggling is to just hang in there. Just don't let go. Because God is powerful to change your heart. Let me give you a couple of quotes, some of my favorite encouragements on this front. The first is from John Piper, who wrote a book that has been really helpful to me called When I Don't Desire God. One of the chapters in that book is about dealing with darkness, including doubt. And here's what he says about when, when you're in that place about holding on. This is what Piper says. Our faith rises and falls. It has degrees. But our, our security does not rise and fall. It has no degrees. We must persevere in faith. That's true. 
But there are times when our faith is the size of a mustard seed and barely visible. In fact, the darkest experience for a child of God is when his faith seeks out, sinks out of his own sight. Not out of God's sight, but his. Yes, it's possible to be so overwhelmed with darkness that you don't know if you are a Christian and still be one, right? God is at the bottom of my faith, and when it disappears for a season from my own view, God may yet be there sustaining its root in the new birth and protecting that seed from destruction. What Piper's getting at is that the strength of your faith isn't as important as the object and the source of your faith. You get that? The strength of your faith, the strength of your hold on your confession is not nearly as important as the object and the source of your faith, which is God himself. He can hold you even when your hold is weak. So hold on. Here's another image. This one's probably my favorite that I've seen so far. This is from Tim Keller's book, Reason for God where he's encouraging, it's at the very end of that book, he's done all of the apologetics kind of work, and now the push has come to shove, and you've got to decide whether or not you're going to be for or against, right? And here's his image for those of us who struggle sometimes with weak faith. Imagine you're on a high cliff, and you lost your footing and begin to fall. Just beside you as you fall is a branch sticking out of the very edge of the cliff. It's your only hope, and it's more than strong enough to support your weight. So how can it save you? If your mind is filled with intellectual certainty that the branch can support you, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, then you're lost. If your mind is instead filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you'll be saved. Why? It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. You get that? That's the key. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. So here's the piece of advice number three. If you are in the middle of doubt, the command of Hebrews is not that you get over your doubt right now necessarily. That's something that can be out of our control. The command of this verse is that you hold on in the middle of your doubt. Be patient through it and pray that God will deliver you from it. That's the command. Hold on. So I want to I say this to those of you maybe who have never committed to Jesus. Maybe it's uncertainty about the truth of it all that's kept you back. And if that's where you are, and if you're wondering whether or not you have enough faith to really believe in him, then, then, then please hear this. Just grab hold on him. Don't wait for some sort of minimum level of confidence. Just grab him and let him be enough for you, even if you aren't enough. See, to think that you had to gin up enough faith to qualify you to be with Jesus is to, is to think that your salvation ultimately falls in your own hands, that you've got you've to make faith, make enough faith by your own power to win his favor. That is to put it in your hands when actually your salvation is all up to God. The only thing that's there for you is to hold on to the branch that he's holding out. So do it. Don't wait. Do it. That's doubts of the mind. What I want to finish with this morning 
is by looking at how this verse can help us fight doubts of the soul. I think what we normally think about immediately when we think doubt is the kind of doubts of the mind that we've been talking about. You know, concerns about whether or not it's all true, about whether we can trust it, about how can we know, right? But I think what we much more often deal with, and there is not a believer in this room that hasn't dealt with it, or what I hear I'm calling doubts of the soul, where it's not like you're really questioning whether God is who he says he is, but when rubber meets the road in your life, you respond in such a way that you show you don't really believe, not fully. You show you have doubt. Doubt comes in many forms. When we give in to shame, we doubt that God could really forgive us. When we give in to pride, we doubt that God is who he claims to be as our maker and ruler. We doubt that our sin is described as he it is as he's actually described it. When we sin, I don't care what it is, when we sin in any way, what we're saying is that we doubt God really cares about our sin or maybe doubt that he's even there to see it. Doubt comes in many forms. These are what I mean by doubts of the soul. What I want to focus on today as we finish up this morning, where I want to drill down, is where I believe our author of this letter wanted to drill down. And that is doubts of the soul that come when you are suffering, when you're facing an unknown future. That's where his audience was. They were having a rough, rough go of it. And in fact, their lives were on the line. So when he wrote to them to hold fast, he knew the doubts they were struggling with were probably less philosophical over coffee, whether or not God exists, then, then can I really trust him to be there for me if it costs me my life? They were dealing with what we deal with on probably a much lesser scale, concerns about a future that includes things we can't control, things that could hurt us, that could not go our way, things that we wish we could control and plan around, but we just can't. That's where they were. It was causing them doubt, and he wrote this to, to encourage them. Look a little bit further ahead in chapter 10, if you still have your Bible open there. I want to give you a sense of where they are. Verses 32 through 34, he refers back to some things that have been happening to them. And here's what he says. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened or after you committed to Jesus, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This is what he had in mind when he said, hold fast your confession without wavering. Their circumstances... Everything around them was wavering, right? They were having their property stolen. They were threatened with beatings and public shame. They were watching as their friends had these things happen to them, and they knew they could be next. That's their circumstances, and they were wavering. And what he's telling them is you and your faith can't waver while your circumstances waver. You can't blow with the things, with the winds of life around you that are affecting you in this way. We tend to think when we're down, when we're suffering, that, 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 or at least I've experienced this, that the promises of the gospel are great if these things are true about your life. But in my context, given what I'm going through, they just can't hold true. But, but friends, I guarantee you there's nothing any of us will go through that is any worse than what these folks were going through. And he wrote this to them because he thought it would hold true for them. And what's the key? 
When he calls him to hold on, his call is directly rooted in God and in God's promises. That's what verse 23 says. It says, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, and here is the reason. He who promised is faithful. Hold fast in the midst of doubts of the soul. When your life and its circumstances are wavering, you hold fast because the one who promised is faithful. He sends them back to the gospel that he's been talking about for the entire letter. He sends them back to God as the one who promised. I love that description of God. I think that could, that's a great way to summarize the way the whole Bible talks about him. Because from Genesis all the way to the end, we see God making promises and keeping promises. It's what underlies all the covenants we've been talking about. It's what underlies the promise that Jesus is coming back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We talked about that a few weeks back. All through the Bible, from beginning to end, is one promise after another and God holding true to those promises. So how he defines God is as the one who is faithful to his promises. Read the Bible with that lens if you're struggling with these doubts. That's what you might call a wide-angle lens on God and his faithfulness. What I want to do now is zoom in a little bit because I think he has something even more specific in mind. I think when he defines God as the one who's faithful to his promises, what he has in mind is what he's been talking about from the beginning of this letter, and that is that Jesus is proof that God keeps his promises. So what you want to do if you're struggling with doubts of the soul is focus in on Jesus. And in looking at Jesus, you see everything that you need to know about who God is and how God feels about you. Think about the way Hebrews has talked about him. From the very beginning, he is the ultimate word from God, a message of peace and hope and healing. God had spoken before through prophets and laws, but now he speaks through his son. Think about him described as the one who became like us so that he could die for us and by dying, defeat death once and for all. The promise made in Genesis 3 that death itself would be crushed has now come true in Jesus. Think about Jesus as the great high priest, the one who the whole system that led up to him was only a, a, a meager foreshadowing of, the one who fixes what's broken in our relationship with God. Think about him as the sacrifice, the only one ever needed once and for all because his blood given for us was so precious that it wipes clean every sin. Think about that Jesus. Think about him as the fulfillment of the promises God had made all along. And you will get a sense of what you're supposed to look at when the doubts of your soul are tossing you around. Christ is the final proof of God's promise-keeping nature. And if God wouldn't spare his own son, what won't he do to keep his promises to you? God has come and involved himself in our suffering. Somehow he has tasted what we taste, and this proves to us that there's nothing that he can't turn to our good. And if God is for us, who can stand against us? That's what he wants them to focus on. Here, where I want to close this morning is to give you one of what's become one of my favorite images for what we will look like if we are holding on to that picture of God's promise-keeping nature. If we have a clear-eyed vision of Jesus... And if we see all we need to see about how God feels for us in that picture, then what will be true of our soul? Here's, here's one of my favorite images. It's in Psalm 131. I've recently 
come across a, a, a sermon or essay on this psalm by David Pallison that's just opened my eyes to how beautiful this picture is. If you have a minute, turn over there, if you have a Bible handy, to, to Psalm 131. It's a psalm about stillness of soul, about the kind of inner quiet that comes when you trust God in the way you should. The psalm begins, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. He's not struggling with pride. He's come to recognize that he isn't who we all naturally think that we are, the masters of our own soul. We, 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 we elevate ourselves and we look down on other people because we're prideful. And when the doubts of our soul come in and we aren't trusting in God, we're going we're gonna to swing from either too much pride or too much anxiety. He's conquered his pride in this moment. Then he says, I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He is not consumed by things he can't control. He's not, he doesn't give in to anxiety when he recognizes that his problems are too big for him. He's, he's not struggling with pride. He's not struggling with anxiety. Why? Verse 3 shows the foundation of his hope. He says, O oh Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. It's the same message as verse 23 in Hebrews 10 that We're to hold fast our confession because God is faithful. And when we look at him, we're protected when our circumstances shift from either giving into pride or giving into anxiety. And what I want want to leave you with is the image in the middle of this psalm for what our souls will look like when we really do trust in the Lord. Verse 2 says this, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Lindsay and I are expecting another baby any time now, and it's bringing back a lot of memories of the early days that we had with Walter. Some of you guys are living those days as we speak. You know what an unweaned child looks like. An unweaned child can be around mom and sometimes even dad, without, can't, can't be around them, can't be held by them without rooting around for milk, right? And if that child is hungry, and gets anywhere close to mom, and sometimes even dad, watch out. Because that child, for that child, mom's milk is everything, right? It's life, it's joy, it's peace. The child lives for it and lives by it, and he can't control the supply, so he gets crazy. You've seen an unweaned hungry baby, right? This is how Pallison puts it. His emotions range over the whole spectrum of noisy negative emotion, the childish versions of things that destroy adults. Anxiety, depression, anger, jealousy, discontent, and confusion. That's what an unweaned child on his mother looks like. But the psalmist describes his trusting stillness of soul as that of a weaned child on his mother. An image of a child sitting, content, quiet, trusting. The child has changed, Pallison continues. Envision your own soul as a small child sitting on your lap. You used to be noisy, squirmy, demanding. Now you sit still. That's the picture of learning peace. That's what our author wants for his friends. It's that simple. And he knows that the only way it's possible is with a clear-eyed focus on God and the promises that God fulfills in Jesus. This author is realistic. 
He knows that life can be awful. He knows that so much of what determines whether life is awful or not is out of our control and won't ever come under our control. And his friends wouldn't have taken him any more seriously than you would if he was was to suggest otherwise, but he doesn't. Instead, what he does is say, hold on. Hold on to what won't change, even in the storms of your soul. It's also the message of one of my favorite hymns, written nearly 300 years ago by a woman named Katerina von Schlegel. It's what I want to close with. It could have been written straight out of our text this morning, straight from the image of the soul as a weaned child. It's a song that addresses the soul that, that, that does what we've all got to learn to do, to, to preach to ourselves and remind ourselves of the promises that are ours and try to claim them each day. Here's, what it, here's my favorite verse. Be still, my soul. Thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Father, this is the stillness that we want. And it is a stillness that's outside of our power. We know that from experience. We know it all too well. Father, would you help us to see Jesus clearly, to be so drawn in by him that we want nothing else, to be reassured by him that you are for us and that if you are for us, there is nothing that can be against us. We want to live from that place We want freedom from doubt of mind and soul. And that freedom is just beyond us. It's out of our reach. So give it to us, we pray by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.